If you're looking for the next best thing to invest in, try investing in your long-term health with Forward. Forward is intelligent medicine with a personal touch. Their doctors are dedicated to catching top killers like cancer and heart disease early, which could save you tens of thousands of dollars in the long run. So invest in a doctor that's invested in you. Visit GoForward.com to learn more about how Forward can help you manage your long-term health risks for one flat monthly fee. That's GoForward.com. It's no secret that writing can be lonely work, but does it really have to be? Whether you're full-time, part-time, or just starting out, you'll get insights into the tricks, tips, and production habits of writers from every level of the biz. From best-selling authors to those launching their first novels, you're sure to be in the company of friends as we encourage great writers to divulge and share their secrets. This is the Great Writer Share Podcast with your host, best-selling author, Daniel Wilcox. Hello and welcome to the Great Writer Share podcast with me, Daniel Wilcox, where every week I sit down with writers from across all mediums and genres to dissect their brains and pluck out tips, tricks and strategies that you can use to boost your writing career. Today's date is the 11th of November, as I record. Uh, it won't be the 11th of November when this goes out, but do I have a treat for you guys today. So today's guest is the wonderful Humphrey Hawksley, who is a BBC foreign correspondent and author of uh, thriller books and has been making has been doing really, really well with his books over the past 30 years. He's a traditionally published author. And uh, it's he's someone that hasn't been on my radar, someone that um, I was introduced to a few weeks ago, and I had to get on the podcast straight away. Um, and we, we go into a lot of really, really interesting stuff in here. He's, he's the first fully traditionally published author I've had on the show. Um, and we dig into things like his research process, we talk a little bit about the state of traditional publishing now and uh, how that's looked over the past 30 years and how that's changed. We talk about his approach to getting his books published, orphaning as an author. Um, for anyone looking to go down that route, there's uh, some interesting nuggets in there for you. Um, and yeah, just kind of go on to that from there in terms of how we research, how we approach that and uh, get the books done and make them as realistic as possible. And uh, it's it was a very, very interesting conversation. You'll see it all coming up, but we we kind of go all over the place and, and Humphrey was someone who was a delight to have on so Humphrey if you're listening thanks again um but I won't tease the episode anymore before we actually go into the main segment but what I will do before we jump into the main guest as everyone expects by now is to give a quick shout out to the Patreon page so for anyone looking to get a little bit more out of the show for as little as one dollar a month you can subscribe to the patreon.com forward slash great writers share page and join our host of patrons already over there enjoying all the benefits um for as little as a dollar a month you can ask guests questions you can get involved in our monthly giveaway um at the five dollar tier you can jump over into our slack group and you can join in with a the conversation there with other writers and see what's going on um, and then we do have a $10 tier as well, which will include a load of live Q&As. And I am doing a bonus as announced last week. So for anyone who hasn't heard uh, last week's episode yet, the anyone who subscribes at the $1 level before the 31st of December will instantly get access to the $5 tier until June next year. So that's six months by just jumping on and pledging a, a quid, a dollar, whatever it is <laughs> in your uh, in your currency. But it's a bit of an extra end of the year bonus to build the community and just to um, give something back to you guys. I'm, this entire podcast is about providing value to you, about bringing on guests that can give you um, tips, tricks, strategies to help you in your writing career. 
Um, and with that, anyone who joins at the $5 tier will also get access to the $10 tier and join in the monthly live Q&A. So there's a lot going on. Feel free to jump in, have a look. All you have to do is go over to www.patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Great Writers Share. Um, <clears throat> and also just a quick shout out that this week's, this month's monthly giveaway is a copy of Cal Newport's Digital Minimalism. So if you fancy winning yourself a copy of that, all you have to do is become a subscriber, jump on over and get involved. And now, without any further ado, I'm going to pass you over into the interview with the wonderful, the delightful Humphrey Hawksley. Enjoy. Humphrey Hawksley is an author, commentator, and broadcaster who has reported on key trends, events, and conflicts from all over the world. His work as a BBC foreign correspondent has taken him to crisis on every continent. He was expelled from Sri Lanka, opened the BBC's television bureau in China, was arrested in Serbia, and initiated a global campaign against enslaved children in the chocolate industry, a campaign which continues till this day. Humphrey is the author of the acclaimed Future History series that explores world conflicts, he has published four international thrillers, together with the non-fiction Democracy Kills, What's So Good About the Boat, a tie-in to his TV documentary on the pitfalls of the modern-day path to democracy from dictatorship. His work has appeared in The Guardian, The Times, Financial Times, International Herald Tribune, Yale Global, and other publications, and now he appears as a guest on the Great Writers' Share podcast. Humphrey, welcome to the show. Hello, Daniel. Good evening. I'm so excited to have you. I really am. I mean, I... Just the intro that I've just read is absolutely packed full of stuff that would be really, really interesting to dissect. And what I tend to do with my guests is I tend to try not to research too much, but to have a, a vague idea about what people are doing, because I don't want to ask questions people have asked before. I want to sort of drill and sort of follow any threads that, that might come out from from the things that we speak about. But there is so much there that is really tempted to jump into that I'm just going to have to resist from, because from by the looks of it, you've lived a very exciting life so far. Well, it, it, it was, uh, it, it sounds like the way you read it, it sounded incredible, actually. It, it was it's basically <laughs> the CV of a, of a foreign correspondent. Mm. Um, and I've been doing that now for what 30 years odd. Um, and it, you do get into these situations. Um, and being storytellers, you sort of understand that, that um, it, yes, it is exciting. It is interesting. And you do have to think on your feet. Um, and you meet the most incredible people. But also, you know, in the world of books and films and that, you can make what we might think is the most mundane uh, situation really interesting and gripping. Um, so I was actually thinking when you, were, when you were going through that, I thought, oh, who's this guy, you know, that's <laughs> been <laughs> arrested in Serbia and thrown out of Sri Lanka and campaigned for... For, for you know, on child slavery in the chocolate industry, and actually, that was my day job for for many many years. And being a journalist, uh, you're either in a you know a war situation, and the wars in those days, and they still are that sort of era. Uh, you, you know, there's not necessarily a good guy or a bad guy. It's just two people, uh, two sets of people fighting each other. Often, what they call non-state act. In other words, it's not necessarily governments. It's probably during a lot of the time I did it, these were two ethnic groups or religious groups didn't like each other. Um, and, and that's what you do. And it becomes second nature to sort of get up in the middle of the night, go to the airport, do all that. And, and I do remember several times when you were doing that, 
and looking out of the car window and seeing somebody standing by a bus stop that was going to an office and being a little envious uh, that, that <laughs> they were going in for a predictable day. Yeah, it must, it's that contrast, isn't it? I mean, you'll be, no matter what you're doing, there'll always be the opposite that you think, oh, that must be nice. And, and to see that person standing there just, I mean, have you ever, have you ever had a job that's, that's taken you to that place where you have had that routine, that very sort of regular rigmarole of, of what you're expected to do? Well, also, yeah, I mean, it's, it's essentially the same job. So if, if you're, you know, I would go out to Iraq or Sri Lanka or something for a stint, and then you come back and you do, at the BBC, you had to come back and you did your time in the newsroom. Now, the newsroom was on a shift pattern. So you would turn up at, say, nine o'clock, whenever the shift started, and work through till six, and there would be a lunch break. And I was always very restless in that that area. But I, you know, people that were bringing up families and that, that had been out in these places and then came back adjusted and made that their lives. So it's just a matter, I think, of having that, um, you know, I don't know, mental bandwidth to handle both of the situations. And if with a big organization like the BBC, if you hadn't done your time at head office, it was very difficult to get the other jobs because you didn't know the people um, that would be appointing you to those jobs or know the networks to make things, uh, you know, to do the sort of stories that you wanted to do. And it obviously has provided you with a a wealth of actual experience to pump into your books because like we read um, in the intro, you've got your sort of thriller series, you've got your um, sort of war impact series, your conflict series. Um, tell us a little bit about what that journey looked like from this exciting journalistic life into writing because obviously there was something in there that brought you down to the the keyboard and said i want to write a book so what did that journey look like for you when did that start i've got a, i don't think i've ever said this before but i think that it was always there i remember being at school uh with a torch under the you know your parents had turned the lights out of the torch under the sheets or whatever it was reading adventure stories and in those days it was authors like Alistair MacLean that did Where Eagles Dare or The Guns of Navarone and that sort of thing. And then it, it moved on to, uh, you, you know, to other ones, the Second World War thrillers and that sort of thing. And I thought, I really want to do this. You know, if I could just write a book like this, I'd be a very happy person. Now, this is a kid that's, what, 10 or 11 years old. So when you're 10 or 11, you don't know what on earth you want to do. <laughs> <laughs> but And that, for some reason, and, and, and my you know people that don't quite have that there's something in and you must have it too daniel i mean there's something you know that this is what i want to do mm. and i think if you're a writer you have that in you and you say you know this is what i want so i think i you know i think i you still don't know even now i became a journalist because i thought that would get me one step to being a, a thriller writer essentially um, and then, of course, the whole journalism thing uh, encompassed me and embraced me and is completely compelling. Uh, and I kept thinking in the lull periods, well, maybe I should start writing that book and you do a page of rubbish and then the next story <laughs> would go and you'd forget about it for a year or two. But the, the first time it was when I was, I, got, I was posted to Beijing by the BBC and I thought I should write a book anyway. And I was doing a sort of non-fiction book about with the China. And this was 20 years ago. So, um, uh, you know, where's China going? What is it? All the rest of it. So I wrote this really boring um, synopsis and sent it to an agent. Um, 
who I picked out of the yellow pages, which they had at that time. You didn't Google stuff then. <laughs> and, and, uh, and he got me a meeting with a publisher who's, who, who's, uh, he's died now, but he was one of those old sort of veteran publishers. And we went into his office and he looked at this piece of paper in front of him, which is my synopsis, and just sort of threw it to one side. He said, this is all very interesting, but do you think you could write a book about America going to war with China? <laughs> and being a, being a sort of hack news correspondent, of course I could, you know, you do whatever the editor wants you to do. And I said, sure. He said, well, look, give me a half a sheet of A4 paper on that and let's see what happens. And that became my first book called Dragon Strike, which was a huge success um, because it was published um, around the time that Hong Kong was getting was being handed back to China in 1997. So there was a lot of spotlight on it. And it was done as what they called a future history. Uh, so it was written as if it was a factual account of something that had happened or was happening. And it wasn't really character-led. It was more sort of technical-led, operations-led. So this is how uh, an aircraft carrier works. This is how policy is made in Downing Street. This is how the Situation Room operates in the White House and that sort of thing, as opposed to the sort of inner feelings of the President of the United States or the Prime Minister of Britain. And it was successful enough that I I did three of them. Um, And then it sort of petered out or I think I, I oh I think uh, yes I did through then then the Iraq war kicked off and I went sort of back to journalism really mm. how long did you have to wait until you got that that meeting with the publisher um once it sort of got underway it was really set for when I was in London since I was living in Beijing so um I think that there was a lot of toing and froing about the really boring outline I had done. Um, you know, that sort of thin volume that lies at the bottom of a bookshop with a colon and an indescribable subtitle <laughs> all over the place. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, uh, but once, I think, once the agent had seen, had, had, had got it, I think he, he, might, he probably hatched something up with the publisher. And then when I, I came, as soon as the next trip to London, I got to see him. But then the process... Uh, would have taken about, I think, six months to go through because mm. I had to, I had to, uh, I had a co-author with it actually, a Financial Times journalist called Simon Holberton. So we had to strike, work out the plot, and then that got to him. And then, of course, the publisher has to sell it to the sales team and all that sort of stuff and toing and froing. So I think the whole process between that meeting and the go to write it would have been uh, about three to four months, maybe. And what is it that you think he, he saw in you? Because obviously you had, you had this proposal, this synopsis of one idea that you had. And from that, there was obviously something there that, that made him think, okay, maybe not this, but we've got this other idea. Was it potentially the way the synopsis was written? Was it, did he know much about your background? Do you think, what, what were the factors that you think led him to taking that chance and putting that out there as your, as your first book? I would think that he saw, um, uh, I think that it, well, this particular publisher had done a book called The Third World War, as a matter of fact, which was the same title as one of my later books, which had been a huge success by a former, um, uh, a former British general. Uh, and because of the 
time that and he I think he sort of wanted to repeat that in in a way. Uh, I was quite well known at the time because I was on the BBC, so publishers always think that they can use that in their marketing of the book. So he had a son. and then there was a, a you know one of the things is the publishers look for is is they know somebody who can write something. So he actually I think we signed that contract on the half sheet of A4 paper that he wanted, <laughs> but it was contingent on the publisher accepting the first chapter. Okay. Um, so, uh, and I haven't had a contract like that since then, actually, but I think he wanted, he wanted to get it underway. He was a very experienced guy. Um, and, um, uh, uh, and, and he, uh, uh, and, and he said, well, let's do it. But if the first trap is, you know, crap, then we'll tear that contract up and, and, and we won't do it. So I worked very hard on getting that first chapter as compelling as possible. Um, and then, and then the, the, the contract went through or the book went through. Fantastic. And what was your process when it came to actually writing that down and getting it sort of scripted? How did you go about planning the book? Was that, you said it was collaborative with uh, another author as well and a, another journalist. Did you guys sort that of bounce ideas off that, each other? That, or? That, well, that was clever with another journalist, and I don't think I'd ever do it again. But you have a co-writer, don't you? So you I know, do. I have several. Have, <laughs> have several <laughs> co-writers. I, I mean, you know that process, but I, but in this case, I think that um, uh, I was I was taking the lead too much in it, and mm. um, and uh, and uh, and and we didn't sort of. Uh, I don't think we gelled as a creative team. Um, very much, but we did we did get it done. Uh, but essentially, I think we sat down and with a huge wall chart and said, "Okay, how is this going to happen here?" And then, how does you know if China attacks the South China Sea Islands, which are a little bit in the news now, uh, so it goes and attacks these islands, and it attacks Vietnam at the same time. Who would react and what would they do and what would happen to the stock markets and how would Britain be involved? And then it got into the, uh, the, the, the sort of technicalities of what the warships could do. And I think one element that, that got a lot of sort of chat, two things actually in it that got, got, got chats. One was the, that, it, it, that China didn't have the sort of sophisticated military that the... Um, that, that the Americans had, it still doesn't, it's getting much closer. But what they did in, in our book is they had some, a diesel electric submarine. And if you have a diesel electric submarine and turn the engine off, it's run on batteries and is completely silent and you can't actually find it. Uh, of course you can a bit, but you really can't, mm. it's very difficult to find. And then we had them buying a whole lot of um, laptops off, um, you know, from off high street shops and using the the civilian software on that so it couldn't be tracked by the military. Uh, and this was something that I just, I talked to a submariner and a couple of people. I said, supposing, uh, supposing we did it this way. And they said, ah, oh, that might work. Um, and I've often found that in research is that, is that instead of going out with a sort of broad brush, uh, try to find out or, or establish the story that you want to tell and then throw out the really stupid suggestions to the experts and see which one sticks. Uh, you, if, you, if you do it the other way around, you often, I've often find myself going down rabbit holes um, mm. because uh, you know, it doesn't quite fit in with the plot and the story 
that you're trying to tell. That's got to be something that's quite difficult, I guess, with a lot of your books. I mean, you're, you're, um, one word might not be the right word, but you're blessed to be surrounded by this, this career that has, has put you into all these situations where you, you see this conflict firsthand. You've, you know a lot about, um, the conflicts around the world, the history of how, kind of how all that happened, which is something that I'm particularly envious in my books because I don't have any of that experience. So I have to hunt and go down the realms of Google and trying to interpret as much of that as possible. But how how heavy do you go into the research phase and and what does that look like for you? How many do you have sort of select people around you that you you bounce off of a lot or I, I, it's in fact I'm doing one at, at the moment and I'm asking myself this question um, so I can bounce it off you and then I can make my decision. So I started a series um, uh, a, a, like the first one that came out a, a, a year ago called Man on Ice. Mm. which was a sort of adventure thriller based on the US-Russian border. And we've got one coming out now at the end of November called Man on Edge, which is based on the Russian-Norway border, both of which I had a, 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 you know, a, a, a lot of sort of research and background again. And now I'm doing another one which I'm taking back to Alaska and then back to Europe again. And this time what I'm planning to do is sitting down and writing what I call the sort of first step outline draft. So pretty much the whole book. Um, before going out to any of those places to see what the smells of the street are and the, the types of the people and, and all of that. And then to go out there in March-ish when I've sort of done it to those places and asking the precise questions and, 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 and the precise locations to fit into the plot that I've written. Mm. It's a new way of doing it because the, when I did man on ice, I actually went out to this desolate Island, uh, that is uh, with a hundred, only a hundred people on it. That's sort of two miles from Russia. Uh, and it took about you know two weeks out on that island, and then doing the research and that, and that gave me the idea for the book. But what it could have also done would have taken me down lots of different rabbit holes, mm. uh, which didn't quite fit in with the concept of the story I was going to tell. I don't know how you do. I mean, how do you do it? You you have your story, or you you do your research and get your story from that, or so I'm quite. Because a lot of my, or some of my fiction can be qualified, I guess, as pulp, I, I tend to come up with my scenario, my characters, um, the sort of story I want to tell. I'll, I'll have the basis of what I want to hook it around, the center it around. And then it'll usually be a case of if one area of a character is quite dependent on something that I'm not entirely sure of. So, for example, um, I was working on a story at the beginning of this year about uh, life on an oil rig. So I was right. doing a lot of digging into what that life looks like, specifically the people, like are there certain roles, what's the hierarchy, all that kind of thing to, to try and get an accurate representation of what that life would, would be like. Because with things like an oil rig, obviously, well, the entire story was going to be set on that rig, which means that I'd have to know it well to give it a good representation. Um, and because that's something mm. well out of my wheelhouse, it's something that I really have to make sure I'm familiar with because... Um, I, I know quite a few people locally and sort of um, through the internet that have friends who work on oil rigs or have worked on oil rigs themselves. So with that, that was quite research heavy. But then with books which are sort of post-apocalyptic because because you're telling an alternative future in which most of the world has been decimated and you don't really have to always anchor it around what the original event was. 
you can just go mm. down the route of here's a fresh slate you can create and do pretty much whatever you want. Um, so it kind of mixes between what what projects I'm working on, really. And I guess it's also about with fiction, there's always that that amount of suspended disbelief, and you can have it's whether you want to focus on making it sort of historically accurate or or focus on that sort of fictional storyline. And I think it was um, I listened to a, an interview with Lee Child where he was talking about one of his Jack Reacher books that he wrote. And he was talking about a chase scene that they did in New York and how he described mm. every road because he, he lives over there, lived over there for years now. Mm. Um, and he talks about the, the streets they were going down, the different turns, this and this. And because he got so bogged down in the actual fact of what that chase was, it then read clumsily because readers didn't really care that you know they turned left on this one and then went right and yeah, then went through exactly. this. It's, yeah. They just want to know what that action is and, and keep that yeah. pace going. So um, I don't know, I guess there's... Will you be going out to an oil rig? If I had the option, I would. Um, I abs- 100% would. I, I don't have that uh, luxury at the minute, but that is something that if I could, I definitely would go to one. At least to see yes, what that sir. experience is like, and particularly with things like that firsthand. And I guess with the, the places you're talking about, because they are very specific and unique in their own way, it is good to get that, that breath of air, that, that smell of the street from there. I think you, because I had a, um, a, a sort of crisis of conscience. I don't know what it is when I did <laughs> the Man on Edge. The the the, the, the there's a, a the Norway Russia thriller that's coming out in a couple of weeks' time, and I'd written most of it, but I wanted to have a sort of action dog sled ride through the snow across the Russian Norway border. You have my interest. Uh, <laughs> and and I thought and I thought, well I can do this. I can look at the YouTube videos and all that. Now maybe I could have done. I honestly <laughs> don't know. But I wouldn't have felt good about it. So I much to the consternation of my family and everything <laughs> who couldn't understand it because I'd already been up there. I said, look, I've got to go back. I've got to get that. And we actually had a great day out with dogs. Amazing. And, and uh, the, the people to, you know, because sh- the, the, the border runs along sort of frozen water and it bounces all over the place. And mm. I don't know whether the actual writing is better, but I do know that if somebody picks me up on it, say, you know, an interview like with someone like you down, down the road, I can actually say, yes, I did smell the dogs and all the rest of things. And one of the things that isn't in there is that if you imagine a dog sled ride, which I didn't know, this is one thing I didn't know. You imagine you're sitting on this dog sled and you can see all the tourist pressure. There's eight dogs we had in front of us all busting to pull you along and they're all held back and then the anchors for them go and they gallop off and you, you you're sort of go off and they've been sitting there for a long time and you're, you're facing their butts. <laughs> And they are farting and doing all sorts of stuff. <laughs> and you just have to, and nobody tells you that until it happens. And then, of course, it all quietens down. <laughs> I guess that's not the bit they put in the brochures. <laughs> no, that's not in the brochures, you know, but it's all part and parcel of it. Yeah. Mm. But do you think part of that then is also because of the, the type of fiction you write, there is an element of people look to those for some kind of historical or some factual content in there and they particularly with thrillers, they tend to go a bit more into the mechanics, into the realism. Um, like I say, whereas mine, the, the people that are reading my books, I know probably are less interested in that and they prefer sort of the imaginative side because I kind of often go into the paranormal and the things that aren't, aren't that realistic or true to life. But you still have to, um, you have to create 
a whole world or situation that the reader believes and accepts. And then you have to take them on the story or journey through that situation. And you can't slip up on the way there, can you? Because they're going to be imagining that in their own own sort of mind. And you have to keep that as accurate to the leap of faith that you've taken them on, Mm. which itself has got to be quite... I remember a New York agent told me, and I did a, a book about 10 years ago now called Security Breach, which I'd set a little bit in the future, but it, under a surveillance society where there are street cameras everywhere, which there are now anyway. <laughs> so, you know, we're, we're in that society. But he said, and there's something in it that, that he picked me up, and he said, Humphrey, he said, you can take your reader on one step with you, uh, and they will trust you to take do that thing, but don't try to stretch that trust any further. Mm. Uh, don't keep, you know, there can be one thing that they know is not real and not the world they live in, and then keep them in that second world, as it were, that, that you've created. Does, does that sound like a familiar thing that you have to do? Yeah, I mean, I'd say so. There's always, uh, the entire reader experience is about trust and yeah. being able to bring them along that journey. And I think it, it depends on what the expectations are of that reader, I guess, of of what they know of you and, and the different books they've, they've read of yours. Um, mm. Cause that's, that'll be the reason different readers gravitate to different authors is, is what experience they're trying to receive. That's a good, that's a very good point, isn't it? Yes. Mm. Yes. That's why I know that I'll... So... Go on. No, no. So, so I, well, I was thinking of the um, sort of conversation I had at a book launch uh, about the, the psychological thriller, mm. which took off, I guess, with girl on a train or gone girl. Um, getting on for 10 years ago now. Um, and it was a genre that everybody wanted because it turned out that this was the drama going on in their own lives. And then I was at a conference um, last year uh, where this topic came up again. And they and there's some publishers there said, well, we think it's going to change because now people don't want to know what's going on in their lives because the, the the sort of psychological thriller, you know, that they don't want all this dreadful tension and drama, mm. <laughs> bloodiness and whatever, you know, in your own life. They they want to have a sort of existential adventure that yeah. they can follow that is separate from the murder when somebody's putting the rubbish out. <laughs> and and there was a, a there was a sort of general discussion going that these sort of niche, big niche, mass market niche things last about. Um, you know, 10 years. So before the girl on the train, there was the Da Vinci Code, which, which, which sort of spurned all these, spurred all these uh, religious thrillers that came out um, about, you know, who is God, who is Jesus, what are the religions doing that? And then came the psychological thriller, and now everybody's scrabbling around looking for the next one. Hmm. If you're looking for the next best thing to invest in, try investing in your long-term health with Forward. Forward is intelligent medicine with a personal touch. Their doctors are dedicated to catching top killers like cancer and heart disease early, which could save you tens of thousands of dollars in the long run. So invest in a doctor that's invested in you. Visit GoForward.com to learn more about how Forward can help you manage your long-term health risks for one flat monthly fee. That's GoForward.com. Yeah, it's a it's a change in pace as well. I guess one one thing that I have heard 
recently kind of follows a bit of that train of thought in that because of the and without getting into politics this isn't necessarily a political show although i have i have opinions um with the situation in america oh, at the can, minute can, with can this, we hear them <laughs> no, maybe maybe when i when i come on your podcast okay, <laughs> you can launch right. one and i'll jump on um okay. but obviously with things like brexit with things like uh what everything's happening in america and sort of all over the world there's there's um a certain amount of tension and i know that i've i've had quite a few readers reach out and they enjoy the escapism that my books tend to bring because they lift us out of this this reality that we are in where everything is quite tense so there tends mm. to be and again it's particularly for my readers maybe not necessarily other people's but i get a lot of um, people messaging and saying that that is specifically what they like about it and they're looking for the next thing to to take them out of this sort of tense world um so yeah sorry that they want a dystopian world but not the one that they're living in yes <laughs> something just that wouldn't happen but could happen it's yes. a strange. It's a very strange way to look yeah. at it. Um, but you you've brought up a couple of times um, your Man on Ice um, book, which came out a couple of weeks ago, um, which is all very very exciting. Can you tell us a little bit about the that book? How how you've approached getting that one? Because you've most of your books have, or all of your books have been through the traditional public route, haven't they? They've all been agents and picked up by houses. Yes, that's yes, that's right. Yes. So what was um, the what was the journey with this book and its its subsequent sequels? Uh, that book originated from uh, a foreign correspondent assignment I was on, and it came about during the around 2015, I, uh, during the Ukraine crisis, when Russia was uh, sort of rearing up again as the sort of ugly force. And I wanted to go somewhere that everybody else wasn't going, but to be able to sort of look at that story. And that was, I opened a a map. I, I sort of love looking at maps when I've got my mind on these things, and saw that the Russian and America, the Russian and America actually share a border, which you know you sort of know, but you don't really know. And it's in the it, it goes through the Arctic, but the, there's a particular place just under the Arctic Circle where there are two islands. One is a, a called, one is called Big Diomede, and that's a Russian military base. And then two miles across the Water is a smaller island called Little Diomede, which got a village of about 80 Eskimos on it that I was mentioning. And I thought, well, I've got to go there. You know, you know it's a no-brainer for me because I like wild places, remote places, <laughs> impossible to get to places. So, <laughs> so we went there and it, it was, it was all of those things. And I was meant to stay about 36 hours and ended up staying more than a week because fog was there and the helicopter can't come in on the fog and there's no ferry, there's no boats, there's no cars, there's nothing. And there's just a, a sort of Eskimo community of stilted grey houses, houses more like sort of little cabins where there wasn't a school. And uh, then across the water, every morning you get up, you see Russia. And through binoculars, you can see the Russian military guard posts and occasionally helicopters coming around. They've got a helicopter base just out of sight. And I did a report for the BBC and, and everything, but I thought, well, what would happen if Russia decided to take this island? Because there was no troops on it. There's no customs posts. There's no government at all. And actually, there's no flags on the border. There's no marker for the border, no boys, nothing. And you can't go across. It's a closed border, essentially. And um, and I thought, okay, so supposing the Russians come in and take this island, what would what would the Americans do? 
Uh, and I asked a number of people in the defense intelligence military communities, and it was quite a funny answer, actually. Half of them said, well, we, we'd just let them have it. <laughs> the, <laughs> the other half said, no way, we'd, go, we'd start the Third World War. Uh, but then I needed a ticking clock, as you do in a thriller. So I thought, well, supposing they take it uh, you know, on the eve of a presidential inauguration that always takes place midwinter on the 20th of January at, at noon, so you actually have a time when one president is handed over to another president. And if you think of the Barack Obama, Donald Trump handover, you can have two guys that don't really get on, have completely different views uh, and would do different things the minute they get into power. Uh, so I built all that up and wrote it um, and sent it to the agent who I think said rewrite it, which most because being a journalist, you, you you write stuff very quickly and you just want to, you know, get it out and then move on to the next one, which is something I, I'm still learning as a as a writer. Um and then I did. I I I rewrote it and, and made it do a proper uh, you know, proper comprehensive thing. And uh and then we sold it and that came out um came out last year, 2018, and the paperback has just come out. And we thought, I discussed with the publishers, so we, we, we're now making a series on it. So the hero of, the, of, of that series comes from this island. So he's an Eskimo without any parents, sort of a rugged guy that joins the Alaska National Guard, which is the sort of local military. But because he's so good, he gets seconded to Iraq and Afghanistan as a special forces guy and happens to be visiting the island when the Russians come in with his fiancée, who's a trauma surgeon um, from uh, from Brooklyn in New York. So there's all these sort of, uh, you know, emotional relationship, culture clashes going on together with the political stuff. Um, and, and I, you know, you, 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 I also worked, sort of thought how to do it. You never know if you get it right. It's a bit like sort of playing a sport, isn't it? You can never get it 100% right. Mm. So how much of it is the action? How much of it is the character, personal relationships? How much is the politics? Um, that, you know, how much is your reader interested in the, how decisions are made in the White House and the tension there? Or do they just want the hard weaponry and the guy going across the ice to... Uh, you know, and all the obstacles that he's going to met to 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 fix the situation, and basically, I think you wing it. But it did it did well, and we did another one that's coming out in a couple of weeks' time, at the end of November, called Man on Edge, which is one I was talking about, where you have the same set of characters, uh, but this time it's the Russia-Norway border, and the kind of spy spy thing smuggling out secrets. Um, across the border, which you have to do in, in hard form, hard sort of uh, disc form, because uh, if you send anything electronically, a lot of information electronically now, it will be picked up. Um, so you're sort of going backwards in a way that you have to carry something uh, across a border. Um, uh, because uh, if you if you try to, you know, there's no encryption and that sort of thing that would be able to, get a huge amount of information there without it being detected. Mm. Um, so we're doing that one. So then I'm doing another one now, which I think will be called Man on Something, uh, whereby I'm going to go back to the that island in Alaska because that's where the hero comes from. <laughs> I'm just trying to decide, <laughs> embrace myself, as we were discussing before. A bit like you going to an oil rig, you know, do I, mm. you know, how do I get, get there, um, you know, 
do I really need this for my book? And I think that I, I, I think at the end of the day, if if you I'm just trying to think, you know, an Inspector Morse series or Midsummer's Murders or that stuff that we know that's set in a sort of English village that who done it, you'd want the author to know the village, wouldn't you? Yeah. So you said in an oil rig, which you know who the hell can get to an oil rig easily, or I said mine on this island. The reader is still going to expect the same service from the author and authenticity from the author. So actually, as I'm saying that, I know I'm persuading myself to do something that I know is completely crazy to do, but I'm going to do it anyway. So thank you for the conversation. You're very welcome. I'm happy to help. And it was actually, um, it was part of the reason that I, I said I was working on the book earlier this year. And I've actually since put it on hold because I didn't feel I was given that authentic experience. And I need to, I need to look at how I approach that because particular story i want to tell why can't why can't you why can't you uh, uh, pop out to an oil rig you need to find one i need to ask around and basically um see how to make that possible you could go up to aberdeen and hitch ride on a helicopter yeah i mean i'm yeah (laughs) there are (laughs) there are circumstances that are a bit hard to to get past but Uh, i can uh i can i can keep pushing it it's definitely it's definitely a story i want to tell um but with the so you've got uh, book number one out you've got book number two soon you've got book three coming out um next year one one question that i did want to ask because so far on this show you are guest 17 and out of my 16 other guests i think i'd say about 90 percent of those have been independently published authors um and i've had a few hybrid authors who have had sort of independent and traditional publishing deals and the this, the story I'm getting from a lot of people who aren't necessarily within the traditional publishing industry is that there's um, a lot of, I guess, tension in how the independent publishing is making it, forcing it to change how it deals with stuff. And I just wondered whether, as a person who has been traditionally published for a number of years, whether you've seen any kind of significant changes in the process of how you've had to apply to get books or how you've been dealt by publishers from sort of the beginning to now, is there anything that sort of changed massively for you that you've you've picked up on at all? Uh, well, I think the technology has changed. So the when I first started in the Dragon Strike that, that we discussed earlier, um, there was no ebook, mm. uh, there was no digital element, and the self publishing were sort of people getting stuff in their backyards, um, and then of course there was what they called vanity publishing then. Um, but now I've, um, uh, uh, I think that the, I think the publishers companies themselves have been very slow and behind the curve on what's been happening. It certainly was about 10 years ago. Uh, so they were very behind the curve on, on the ebook thing, the self-publishing ebook elements of it. Uh, and this was partly a generational thing because the guys that had sort of been handling the bestseller writers, uh, the John Le Carres of this world, and the um, you know the Dan Browns and that they they were still around, but they were you know they, they're going to their sort of fifties and, and and whatever. Uh, but they weren't going to have that sort of new input of, of generational change. The younger people that came in were finding it's very difficult to sort of change the whole publishing model around. Um, I I think that 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 the. Uh, but the actual process, which I'm going through at the moment with um, with this series, is that you know, as an author, even a sort of author with a publishing house author, 
is that you have to do the marketing yourself. Mm, I was going to um, ask. You know, if, now, and you might, if you can afford to, have to put your a lot of skin, your own skin in the game for it. So you mentioned Lee Child, James Patterson, Peter James, these people have all put substantive amounts of their own money into getting their books out there and they can afford it. So, you know, the, the struggling artist in the garret type of thing, you know, is, is not, but, but the, when I go to the author society meetings or the thriller, right, these conferences, I actually get quite depressed because 90% of them uh, are people that, you know, aren't quite where they imagined they would be. Uh, so therefore there's always someone to blame. You know, the books weren't in the shops or the, this went wrong or that went wrong and everything. But I think I rather approach it in a way that um, what is going to go wrong will go wrong. Mm. So I've been orphaned, uh, I think, more times than I can imagine. So just to give you a, a, a sort of example, the book that I mentioned that I wrote a little bit into the future uh, called Security Breach, um, which I think came out about 10 years ago. I was paid a lot of money for that book by an American publisher that was then called Warner Books. Um, and I was covering Iraq at the same time as well. So I wasn't keeping as close enough eye. The contract was signed and all the rest of it. Um, but I wasn't getting the sort of edits and changes back from the editor. I said to the agent, what's happening? And he checked. So the guy that had bought it uh, had been fired. Uh, <laughs> And nobody really wanted the book, it turned out, or nobody had read it <laughs> apart from him. So, so, so then there was another younger editor who was very nice that I worked with for a couple of weeks. And then she left for another company. And then I was put onto a sort of veteran editor who wasn't going anywhere because he was two years from retirement. But then the whole company got taken over. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and... The marketing budget, now, publisher will never uh, reveal the marketing budget when they sign the contract. Uh, the, the more the money that is paid, the more likely they are to put money into marketing. But I, it, that, as far as I know, is never part of the deal. So the marketing budget that had been allocated to this book and a number of other books was completely stripped away and given to the books that were favored by the new executives that had come in with the company takeover. Um, so therefore you get these situations. Now we were talking earlier on about, um, was it Garn Girl or Girl on the Train? One of those two, which I think was published here by Transworld or something like that. One of those companies. Anyway, they had four of those books. So imagine four similar books to, to, to Girl on a Train, all pretty much the same, all about to be published by this same publishing company, which I can remember now, but I won't mention it just in case <laughs> somebody says, well, that wasn't me. And they, the, the, the editors in that company did not know which one was the best. So they put it out to a focus group and the focus group came back and the focus group was very divided, but they, they decided that Garn Girl was the one that really was the one that would, you know, hit all the right buttons. The marketing budgets were stripped away from the other three and all put into Garn Girl, which became a huge success. But if, but those other three books were probably just as good, mm. but it didn't have the, that muscle of money and, and, and sales teams around it. And I don't know what those three books were and who those authors were. Maybe they picked themselves up and, and, and done something else. Maybe they've gone off to do another thing. So, 
the whole, I think what I'm saying on this thing is that the whole element of getting published uh, by a mainstream publisher, it's probably as much as a crapshoot as it is getting independently published. Um, and I have the rights back to uh, three or four of my books that are up there. And they, and I don't do any of this bookbub stuff with them. I just put them there up on Amazon. But I can see how much they sell every day. And the mm. ones that are selling are the ones that we talked about earlier, the Dragon Strike, Third World War, and Dragon Fire, are selling every day from somewhere in the world. Uh, the other the other commercial fillers, including the security breach one, barely sells a copy. But I suspect, and, and this is why I've sort of veered away from independent publishing, because I can see that you can do a, a lot of stuff, a lot of work on it. Maybe you can shed some light on this. And then your sales will be, will be very, very low. Uh, and you actually don't have any sort of backup or anything to do it's just you every day trying to sort of find a different way to sell that book am i right or i mean there are there are lots of different um approaches and strategies to to doing that i think if if people are approaching it in that way where they have a book and they're trying to peddle the same book or the same sort of handful of books without bringing out new material i think people independently struggle it it, it tends to be a game where you have to be constantly producing you have to be bringing out new work pretty regularly um, in order to keep fans engaged and to keep Amazon feeding people into your system. Um, okay. It's, yeah, mm. it's, it's a difficult one. It's, I, I think... You regularly, you mean every every couple of months or every six months or...? So, I, I mean, I'm working with people at the minute um, who tend to put out books sort of once a month at least. Okay. Um, okay. Just to feed that. And there's, uh, there's yeah. sort of all kinds of jargon, sort of like the 28-day cliff where... Um, your books will naturally, I say naturally, depending on what you do to start with, but they'll sell, they'll sell, and then you sort of get to 28 days and then they'll start to sort of drop off because Amazon algorithms have, have decided that that's as far as they'll push them for. I mean, I'm being very sort of layman's with this, but um, there's... That's yeah, interesting, yeah. Yeah, there's mm-hmm. a, lot of, a, a lot of work to do as an independent. It's a very different strategy to um, traditional publishing from, from what I understand anyway. Um, but it, it yeah, depends, I, think I guess, what kind of stuff you want to approach as a writer. Yeah, I, 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 I guess so. I've, I'm carrying out an experiment along the sort of Peter James Lee Child um, thing in that I've got a social media company that's creating videos yeah. um, and social tiles. You'll be familiar with this, this thing. And yeah. um, uh, along a raft of platforms that uh, and this word content keeps coming out to me yes You've got to content marketing content, everyday content 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 so so he keeps pushing he's very good he keeps saying look we need more quotes from your book we need another video we need mm. to get the people in and i've seen it is you know every day there's more engagements and more shares and more this sort of thing and that sort of thing this is being done you know in 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 cooperation with the publisher but it's a totally separate sort of entity to it i mean they're mm. feeding stuff into it but it's my operation really to see whether it's gonna gonna work or not at the moment touch wood it seems to be going in the right direction yeah there, there's a lot of um because my my former full-time job was uh, as a marketing manager and there's a lot of stuff about the social media world about having to constantly keep reminding people that you're there about just basically bashing people with content because depending on how granular you get with it 
most people will want to at least see something fresh from you a minimum of once a day sort of at the barest of minimums um if you're going to sort of hyper succeed and it depends again what your what your outputs want to be what your your ultimate goals are but um yeah i mean social media and and content marketing is a whole whole different ball game but we are we are unfortunately coming up on time a little bit and i've got a couple more questions from patrons i want to ask you off you go um but it might mean that i'll have to drag you back at some point because this is very very (laughs) interesting um Okay, so these questions are from my patrons over at patreon.com forward slash great writers share. Um, I'll, I think I mentioned it in the intro all about that, so I'm not going to re- remind people now, but this question is from Mark M, who says, how much research did you have to do for the future history series? And do you have any tips on how you would do it differently with the benefit of hindsight? Um, a lot of research for those uh, things, working through uh, military people, intelligence people, uh, and that kind of thing. I don't think I would do it any differently, actually. Um, I might reread, reread the books and, um, and, and say, well, I should have gone in that direction or this direction. Um, but for the style of books and the type of readership, um, I think, of course, a lot of it now, I'd probably be talking to less people because um, as the internet, uh, I think the last one of those was came out in 2003 or 2004, uh, so the internet is far better now and I would sit and do what we're doing now sort of on zoom or Skype and talk to people instead of flying into Delhi or Mumbai and going mm-hmm. up to military camps. Um, but, uh, but as far as the sort of general, um, sort of, sort of ethos and, and the way I was doing it, I'd, I think I'd keep it pretty much the same. Nice. Uh, John Cronshaw asks, and he is a former journalist himself, what challenges did you find in writing fiction compared to reportage and what makes a good dragon? <laughs> in, in reporting, uh, you write it, press a button and it goes. And I thought when I was doing my first book, well, that's what, you know, it's 80,000 words. So that's um, 80 feature articles or something like that. No way. The strands and the structures <laughs> that have to run all the way through the book is something that continues to flummox me. Uh, and I have the impatience of a journalist. I don't think I have the patience of a sort of, you know, long-term writer. Um, so I'm constantly fighting that thing. So that was a, a question that I can tell was given with great insight. Uh, yeah, it's tricky. The, 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 the research in that is great from the reporting but the structuring of a particularly fiction with character-driven subplots, atmosphere, and that sort of thing, uh, you really have to say, right, um, you know, I'm not a journalist anymore. I'm a writer. And that is a whole different trade. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, and that's a question from patrons. So now we will jump into our quick fire round, which as forewarned before I hit record is uh, 10 quick questions. I'm going to throw at you as quickly as possible answer them as best you can. Uh, if you do get stumped, feel free to say pass. I'll just delete half the interview. Um, but we'll <laughs> roll. If you're happy to get going, I can throw some questions at you now. Are these general knowledge questions or? These are just random questions. Right. Off, off you go Not, then. You, you should be able to answer them. They're fine. Um, okay. Helicopters or planes? Helicopters. Who's the one person you'd most like to meet? Oh, um, Mick Jagger. What one thing goes with you everywhere you travel? Uh, a little pebble from the island of Barra, a uh, hand-painted pebble from Barra that I got back in the 80s. It's kind of good luck charm. What's the most memorable place you visited? I think Little Diomede, 
the island in, in the book, uh, the, in, in Man on Ice. It, it's just so wild and remote and, and completely crazy. What book are you currently reading? Um, I'm looking at it now. Oh, no, that's the, the Royal United Services Institute Journal. So that's not a very good one, is it? <laughs> <laughs> and I have with me Alan First, The Spies of Warsaw. <laughs> nice. What one book would you recommend to a friend? Oh, um, oh my. Um, oh, uh, Candide. Voltaire, Candide. Uh, what's your favourite animal? Dog. What one food can't you stand? Pineapple. Is there a single quote which you live your life by? Failure is not an option. Although that's a bit of a cliche, but it's a good one, isn't it? I love it. Cliches for a reason. And what <laughs> impact would you like to have on the world? None. It's too many people trying to find relevance. <laughs> Perfect. That's 10 questions. Okay. Good nice. questions. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Did you feel the pressure? I mean, you've, you've obviously been in more pressured situations and some guys and his living room asking you 10 questions, but it tends to, it tends to get writers really sort of their, their heart racing. <laughs> well, it, it does a bit because you think, you know, this is my, you know, my legacy. People are going <laughs> to laugh at me about this the rest of my life. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I do have one more question, which is where can our listeners find out more about everything that you do and all that you're working on? If they Google Humphrey Hawksley, uh, that's H-A-W-K-S-L-E-Y, my website comes up and then all the books and everything's on there. If they don't want to do too many taps, uh, there's www.manonice.co.uk and that'll go straight through to the latest series. Perfect. Well, Humphrey Hawksley, thank you very much for coming on the Great Writer Share podcast. It's been a pleasure. It's been mind-stretching. Thank you mind-stretching i love it (laughs) awesome and thank you everyone for listening and i will see you next week thanks for listening to this week's episode of the great writer share podcast next week i'll be talking to house sitter traveler and globe hopping author kelly hayes rate and don't forget you can get early access to every episode of the great writer share podcast and the chance to ask upcoming guests any of your questions just by becoming a patron of the show all you need to do is visit www.patreon.com forward slash share and support the show for as little as $1 a month. One more time, that's www.patreon.com forward slash share. Until next time. Acast powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hey, y'all. This is Kenya, creative director and co-founder of Domino Sound. And this is Alexandra De Palma, executive producer and co-founder of Domino Sound. And we're a queer, disabled, Black woman-owned podcast production company and network creating authentic, inclusive, provocative content. We just launched Domino Presents, which is a new series of special audio projects. The premiere episode features the founders of Poppy Juice, the queer art collective throwing the hottest parties in New York City and around the world. We also recommend The Cheat Code, our hit 10-episode audio soap opera surrounding a love affair. Think love and hip-hop meets The Affair meets The Sopranos. 
Follow us on IG at DominoSoundCO to keep up. And listen to our shows on the ACAST app or wherever you get your podcasts. Just search Domino Sound. ACAST, 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 ACAST recommends. recommends.